Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast, a podcast hosted by Renew.org. We are concluding out our series on the Sermon on the Mount today as we feature an interview between Daniel McCoy and Jeremy Bacon as they continue their deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount and they share insights and revelations that they have encountered during their study. I hope that this series has meant something to you. And stay tuned with us because we got more things to come afterwards. And I'll give a little pr- premiere of that at the end of this episode. So with no further ado, here's the episode. So as you were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds like 2018 is kind of when you really started doing a deep dive. You know, were there some times where you were just really wrestling with the meaning of something and you're like, wow, I had never seen it this way before and been able to kind of have an aha moment that was, that was helpful. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that happens so many times because, okay, my job doesn't use a whole lot of my brain. So I'd be thinking about this while I'm wandering around the store doing whatever it is I do. And there are so many times where I would just stop dead in my tracks and be like, oh my word. That's what that means. Holy cow. I think, well, I guess one example I can think of would be blessed are the pure in heart. Because I, I looked at the Greek and the Greek literally says clean. And, you know, I, I've heard, you know, whole Soren Kierkegaard's thing to be pure of heart is to will one thing. And that, that's really great and philosophical. It's just not what Jesus is saying. And, and sometimes we get a little too, he's not a philosopher. Um, Jesus uses the word clean. So immediately I start thinking, okay, Old Testament, clean and unclean and that whole system. And how does someone become clean in the Old Testament? And I think about the kind of the, the steps you have to go through in purification. If you know, you're like for the, if you've committed a sin, you have to bring the guilt offering. And I start going through, okay, this, this, and this. And, and I'm seeing Christian analogs to all of these things you have to do in order to become clean. And I'm like, okay, there's something here. And then I don't know where this came from, but all of a sudden I'm thinking about Peter in Acts 2 at the end of this, at the end of his sermon, when he says, and you know, they're like, okay, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of forgiveness, uh, whatever, quoted it wrong, for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, something like that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I realize, wait a second, those are literally the exact same things I was seeing in the Old Testament sacrificial system. How do you become clean? You do these things. And I'm like, that's literally exactly what Peter just told his audience. Okay, you just realized you crucified the Messiah. You guys know what to do. And he tells them what to do, but in Christian terms. Hmm. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That one stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> It's awesome. And any any other examples where, man, it was just hard. Like it was just, you know, something just was not making sense. And like, oh, okay, I, th- I think I've got it now. And and even Dallas Willard wasn't, you know, giving you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, gosh, this is a silly example, but I just want to say it because I can't anywhere else. But the thing that, that bugged me the most, because I, I realized the Sermon on the Mount really has really solid structure. And it's really structured quite clearly and quite tightly. And then the paragraph on judgmentalism just really feels like it's smack dab in the middle of a paragraph. I mean, you take the section before and the section after, you take the paragraph on judgmentalism out, it flows perfectly. And I'm like, why is this here? 
And any critical scholar would just want to punch me in the face for saying this, but my gut says it was literally audience reaction. Jesus is saying the sermon, and while he's in that paragraph on worry, he looks around and he sees somebody and he's like, that guy's judging somebody based on something I need to say, I just said. Let me address that real quick. And so he turns to the thigh, gives the paragraph on judgmentalism, and then gets back to the paragraph he was saying. Pet theory, but uh, that's, I don't know. That's my pet theory on that one. Let's go. Was there ever a um, particular verse or section of the Sermon on the Mount where you, you did find yourself understanding it pretty clearly, but you were just really wishing that it said something else? Yeah. And, and how did you handle that? I'm, I mean, there are probably numerous places where most of us could say that, but was there anything in particular for you that was just like, man, I wish I didn't say that? Um. Blessed are the merciful. That one was rough because that was during one of the most heated times of the pandemic. And I was just seeing a lot of really nasty behavior going on. And it said, blessed are the merciful. And I was like, oh, I have mercy on these people. How do I do that? And I'd heard an analysis of mercy before that like grace is giving somebody something they don't deserve, whereas mercy is not giving somebody something bad that they do deserve. And that's maybe a nice legal analysis, but when I started actually researching the word mercy, I was like, that's not how the word mercy is used. In the New Testament, mercy is a compassionate response to the suffering of another person. And I was just like, how do I respond to these people compassionately? That was very challenging. And eventually the answer was something along the lines of the, the issue of forgiveness, of realizing, okay, I am not seeing their suffering right now, but there is some, and they are obviously hurting. And even though I really don't like the behavior I'm seeing, let me try to have compassion on them, and at least on that front. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really helpful. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, there's so many, I mean, back to the upcoming election, back to the us versus them, it just, it feels so right to feel merciful, compassionate toward, an, you know, one group. And then to the other group, it just doesn't feel right. It feels wrong. Yeah. And is that is that kind of what you were experiencing, a little bit of the that's not what they need right now. They don't need mercy. They need, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, this person needs to be called to task for, for their behavior, but no, they, and, and part of the ability to have mercy rests on our humility and understanding we are operating on incomplete information. Mm -hmm. And if I knew more about that person, I would see something to be pitied. Mm -hmm. I don't that is, but I guarantee you we're all human beings. There is, and it's not something that excuses their behavior, but it is still something I can latch on to have pity for them. You know, speaking of, of having pity, I think sometimes we can give ourselves a free pass, but I think sometimes we actually feel pity for other people more easily than we feel for ourselves. And we, we can almost 
feel a self-condemnation, a, a perpetual guilt. How would you speak to the person who has read the Sermon on the Mount and they have basically said, yeah, this is nowhere close to me at any level. I'm, I'm, I'm just failing. I give myself an F in all of these areas. So it just reinforces kind of the self-condemnation. Where's the hope for that person when they see in the Sermon on the Mount just more reasons to feel like they just don't make the cut? I am really glad you asked that. One, I think the, the verse that impacted me the most on that score was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Because, yeah, studying the Sermon on the Mount in depth, specifically from this practical sense of, does this work? Can I actually do this? It was a matter of constantly seeing ways that it was falling short. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He doesn't mean they have it. You don't hunger and thirst for something you have. You hunger and thirst for something you don't have. So if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I only do that when I recognize I am falling short of righteousness. But as long as I desire it, like, okay, I see where I'm falling short, but I really want it. And then the blessing is for they will be filled. I mean, there is, there is a promise that we can grow. Jesus can take us to a, a firmer place of walking with him. And seeing where we fall short is part of that. If we don't see where we fall short, we don't see where we need to grow, which is the problem with judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is specifically a way to avoid seeing where you fall short and instead just project it on everybody else, which I think is why one of the reasons he hammers it last, because he's like, okay, you need to get this straight or you're not going to be able to work on any of this other stuff. You need to let, you have to let yourself and you have to let everyone else be human. Only then are you open to actually growing. So if you recognize where you fall short, you're in a good spot, which is, I think, a fair aspect of being poor in spirit. Sometimes it's held as the only one. I don't think it's the only one, but it is legitimately an aspect of being poor in spirit. If you're really like, I don't know where I'm just garbage on this, then Jesus is like, good, now I can help you out. What you're saying is that, you know, we, the Sermon on the Mount is for the people who feel uh, poor in spirit, for, for the people who are hungry and thirsting for what they, they obviously don't have. It doesn't leave them there, though. So, how does it? You know, I, I know it's 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 common to say, you know, we're only human, and to be able to see kind of our common humanity. And I think that's really helpful. But I also think that Jesus came as a human to show us what humans were meant to be. Absolutely. And so, in what sense? And and I guess maybe the better question is how how does the Sermon on the Mount in what ways does it grow us up to what a human is meant to be? Does that, I mean, that's, it sounds like a very, a very broad question, but I, I guess I'm, I'm really aiming at like methodology. Like, how does it do that? Is it a matter of, okay, I need to, I need to add to my checklist or, you know, are, is there, is there a particular methodology by which the Sermon on the Mount grows us up into the humans that we were meant to be? I think 
I don't know if this works as a methodology, but I think it is all about taking on the heart of God. The paragraph on love, right? It says, you know, good at it to love those who love you back or, you know, just to love those people who are in your little group. But if, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and in doing that, you will become sons of your Father in heaven. It, it's probably the clearest place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, we're talking about taking on God's heart. If you can, you know, God sends sun and rain on everyone, which is part of that paragraph. And Jesus is saying, okay, if you can love everyone, then you are now living out God's heart. And when I was really thinking about their, that paragraph for the chapter on that paragraph, there was a point where I realized this is completely impossible. I mean, I, I use an example of Christians who are undergoing severe persecution and loving the people who were literally beating and torturing them. And I'm just like, yeah, no, people can't do that. It's, it's literally a miracle. And at the end of the day, we will only become, fully become who we were meant to be if we let God give us his heart. And that depends on him miraculously intervening in us to give us his heart. I, I really end up leaning on, you know, like what John says about, and John like 14, 15, 16, abiding in Christ. We abide in him. You know, God more talks, in, in, in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, more talks about, Getting your focus and your values centered. Seek the kingdom first. You know, seek the heart of God. If we abide in Christ, that's what we focus on. And I think, honestly, our lives conforming more to the Sermon on the Mount is more a, a matter of seeing things in that sermon and realizing there is something in me that is, it's not something I need to do to become like that. It's something that in me that is blocking Jesus from flowing through me like that. And that's something in me I need to release. I need to be willing to face it and let it go so the life of Christ can flow through me. Hmm. That's, that's my best answer to methodology. It's really helpful. In, in terms of, I, I, think I think it's easy to see the heart of God in Jesus' compassion, miracles. But what you're saying is we really see the heart of God very clearly, very well defined through, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's what the sermon is, yeah. Is, is there an example you could give where, as you've been wrestling with, with the sermon, you have realized, okay, I got to let this gotta let this go in order to let the life of Jesus flow through me, which I love that language of, you know, being able to see it as, as Christ in me, you know, living through me and in my, as I'm working at the home improvement store and I'm, you know, in, in, in my life in 2024 or whatever, living through me, have there been any examples or are there any examples you give of where you've had to kind of consciously say, all right, I got, I've got to leave this behind. Because this is this is totally blocking Jesus living through me. Well, I've I've mentioned a lot of them. Contempt was a big one. Judgmentalism was a big one. And yeah, I think I've even mentioned in the book. It took me like a full year working on judgmentalism 
to, to be able to release that and not just be walking around with that all the time. Yeah. I mean, th those are, those were a couple of the big ones that really stood out to just kind of like, okay, this needs to change. But that, I, I love that because it's, it's not a matter of, of you. The language that you're using is not of you making it happen. It's, ma it's a matter of God doing it, his spirit through you, you know, th through the teachings of Jesus. And, and it's a matter of you participating with it or not, but, but it's a matter of him, him doing it. So I just, I really appreciate that language. And I, I truthfully think we, we really need to own the supernatural element to that. I mean, he has to work. So yeah, you, if you try and reproduce this behavior without taking on the heart of God, it goes wrong. That is literally exactly what the Pharisees were doing trying to reproduce the behavior without taking on the heart of God. But taking on the heart of God is something only God can do. You know, we can't on our own power take on the heart of God. That's, that's not a thing. Yeah. Otherwise, we're just back looping through different versions of Matthew 5. Pretty much. Um, how do you recommend people using this book? What are some... What what is what is maybe the best case scenario of, of how someone could benefit from this book? I think individually, uh, you really you really want to read through it sequentially because there there's a whole lot more theology there than I assumed going in. I mean, there's just and sometimes I'll only cover the theology when I happen to come across a paragraph that talks about it, but it's like super important like the, the one on blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's some extremely important theology in that that I'm like, maybe that should have been like an introductory chapter. Um, so reading through it sequentially, because if you just jump into, you know, some of the stuff on like, don't worry, or, you know, just like, oh, I struggle with this or that, and you jump in and maybe you've missed the chapters that are talking about how this is not about following rules. It's about taking on the heart of God. You're going to come at it from the wrong angle. Mm. So I think reading through it sequentially is helpful. The chapters are pretty short. So honestly, it really does make a pretty good, just read a chapter and maybe the questions will give you something to think about and do a daily devotion out of it. Doing it personally, I would recommend if you find one that really hits you, you're just kind of like, oh, this this is impactful. Sit with it for a while. I've already had a friend who did that. Um, he he got the book and barely got a few ways. I think he just got into like the third chapter. And this idea that the world we interact with is the shadow world that is passing away. And the kingdom of God is a more real one that is accessible to us. That blew his mind. And he's like, I just had to stop. It was like... I just need to sit with that one for like a month. And if that's the way to do it, do it. I have heard some folks using this as a small group study, maybe just reading a chapter, talking about the questions, do about two chapters a session, and it seems to have worked really well. That's awesome. Yeah, I love I love the accessibility of it. it, it it's amazingly accessible for as deep a dive as it as it takes you know it, it, it's it's a, a very very good blend of that what are, so what are your biggest hopes for this book oh 
Well, if I had, I mean, biggest hopes, I can dream pretty big. I think if I said my biggest hopes should be some megalomaniacal. But my, my prayer has been that would, God would help it find the audience he has for it. I think there's, there's also a sense, let me try to say this in, in a good way, in a right way. It feels like in our cultural moment, there is a kind of cultural Christianity that is really wrapped up in itself. And Jesus is almost like the mascot. <laughs> and, and that is a church that is so much smaller than the kingdom of God. And so I guess my, my big hope would be that this book might help move the needle on that, might help people hear the call to something much bigger than the form of Christianity they'd experienced before. And, and at times, take a sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and if it's, if it's to your own faith, wonderful. If you're a church leader, um, may God guide you in how to take a sledgehammer to your own church's theology. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it without his guidance, but with his guidance... That's what Jesus did, took a hammer to it. Mm -hmm. how, how is it possible that churches have been able to become, eh, that's an overstatement. It is, it, how is it possible that it is easy and natural for Christians who have been kind of insiders for a while to become the very kind of Pharisees that Jesus was trying to reach and, and to, to try to kind of break through those, those very cold hearts. Like, well, how is it, how is it possible that that has become a natural progression for Christians? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it's human nature and, and people have been doing it as long as Christianity has been around. What's the, the Chinese proverb, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. I mean, if you just grow up in it, you just assume that's normal. And being hooked on rules and external forms is where we all start. I mean, that's just how kids find their way in the world is based on rules and external forms. And, and as social beings, we, we like to find little hooks that help define who our group is. And the forms of Christianity can easily, there's, there's one sentence in the book, and I'm like, man, I may have should, maybe should have written a whole chapter on that sentence. But I talk about using the forms of Christianity as a framework for constructing our tribal identity. As social beings, we're always looking for, you know, what defines our tribal identity, what defines who we are. And religion has always been a, a tool for doing that. So how to be born into that and then recognize Jesus doesn't want to be anyone's tool for building any kingdom other than his. And so how do we hold all of those things lightly, if at all, and just build his kingdom? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question to wrestle with. Well, man, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode on the Sermon on the Mount, a podcast hosted by Renew.org. Um, coming up next, we got a brand new series on um, Rhythms, another book hosted by Renew.org. And I'm excited because we got to feature some um, behind-the-scenes interviews with uh, Daniel McCoy and Andrew Jitt. And I know that this is going to be a great series. So stay tuned with us next week as we launch that. And I hope that you guys enjoyed Sermon on the Mount. Once again, go check out his book. You can find it on Renew.org or you can click a link in the description. So see you guys next week on the Real Life Theology Podcast.